my advice for a consumer or a brand in general is like, it's not one size fits all. There's not one way to be sustainable or regenerative. It's there's so many different avenues. There's so many different fights you can fight to help create positive change in the industry. And I think whatever feels the most authentic is where you're going to get the biggest change. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mom. Do you have a share for today? I do. Again, it's about weeds. I feel like I talk about weeds a lot. Well, it's that time of year, right? Yeah. Weeds that are not weeds. I did a little experiment last fall where I decided I would try to use violets as a ground cover because I have violets absolutely everywhere. And normally in traditional lawn care gardening circles, violets are seen as just a weed, these things that pop up everywhere and take up space and you need to try to get rid of them. But I noticed they have really beautiful foliage, of course, beautiful flowers in April and they're edible and there's just really nothing bad to say about them in my book. So I started last fall taking them out of all the places where I wanted to plant other things and transplanting them into areas that needed ground cover. And I'm finding this spring that the results are really satisfying. First of all, they created a beautiful purple carpet in April. And now that the blooms have faded, this just a really nice lush green covering for soil where other things have trouble growing. So I put that out there as a suggestion to people that have problem areas in your garden and maybe too many violets in places you don't want them, move them over. They'll fill it all in really nicely. So that's my share and tell for today. Okay. So I don't know why this popped up on my Spotify, but it did. I got a suggested podcast called Garden Keeper Gus. That's definitely for kids. And it's in Spotify Kids and Family. And so I thought, oh, this is interesting. And it literally says, parents, this show is perfect for ages three to five and up. So I'm not a parent. I'm not ages three to five. But I did listen to a few minutes of this cute, technically it's a podcast, but it sounds like a little radio show of this little kid and his mom and their garden adventures. And the music is really sweet. The one that I listened to, they're making breakfast and you can hear the pan clinking and then they run out of eggs and she's like, Gus, will you go to the garden to get more eggs? And then he's like, sure. And he walks out and then you hear the chicken. So anyways, for anyone who has kids, Garden Keeper Gus, it's on Spotify. That was really sweet. Actually, I know a little guy named Gus that might enjoy that. Oh, yes, I do too. Okay. (laughs) So something that I wanted to chat about today that I thought might be interesting is something that we bring up a lot and we don't really have an answer to it. I mean, a lot of things don't have a direct answer. But when we talk about sustainability, there are many, many things within that category. But a big one is this tension between true sustainability being not creating anything new and only using what we have and only recycling, you know, in this closed, loop type thing. And then there's also this other side of it that's like, well, as long as we are making new things and we are creating new things, what if we create healthier and cleaner supply chains and we rebuild these broken systems, we rebuild them to make new things that are better, but we're still making new things, which is still creating waste, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the trade-off is that you are creating healthier systems. So it's kind of tricky. There's not really an answer to that, but I just wanted to chat about that today. I think to your point, we don't live in a world where people are going to really just stop buying things. So it's really useful to talk about reusing things and mending things and upcycling and recycling, 
all of that. That's really great information and necessary information. But we can't just act like everybody's going to all of a sudden do that. The, the whole system's going to screech to a halt and people are not going to buy new things. So I think it's just as important to bring up your point again, how things can be made more responsibly and sustainably, and also to highlight the companies that are really making an effort to do that. Yeah. And then, of course, within that, making things more responsibly, more sustainably, that's even a subjective question, you know, (laughs) according to what? So all of this and the goal of this podcast is to just equip you with information and introduce you to people and allow you to make your own decisions about what that means to you and what you're going to value and what you're going to put your dollars behind. And anything we say on here is really just our own feelings and the way that we lead our lives. And we do not claim to be the complete experts and know exactly what's the best for everyone. And even since starting this podcast and starting Lady Farmer, a lot of our views and ideas have changed on a lot of these subjects because as time goes on, more information comes out and we have more perspective and all these things. But there are a few things that we have constantly stuck to. And one of those is organic cotton. Yeah, we have from the very beginning made a point about organic cotton versus conventionally grown cotton. And one big reason for that is when you talk about natural fibers as opposed to synthetic fibers or synthetic blends and so forth, cotton is a natural fiber. It does come from a plant. And I think it's a a very, very common assumption that cotton being a natural fabric is clean and good for the planet and all of that. So we want to say, yes, organically grown cotton is a natural fiber that's clean and good for the planet. However, conventionally grown cotton has a lot of problems when it comes to the environment and human rights and the health of the producers and the manufacturers and even us, the consumers. To some degree. And we do know that organic cotton is more expensive and can be harder to get. But when we look at the real costs to our health and the human rights involved in growing it and producing it, we do really believe that organic cotton is the better buy. And when organic cotton simply isn't an option or might be inaccessible due to cost, truly the next best thing is to shop secondhand or reuse things that you already have. But conventional cotton is just a really toxic, dirty crop. And it's quite unusual these days to find apparel manufacturers that use organic cotton, obviously because it's more expensive, it's hard to come by and all those things. So we really love it when we come across brands who are doing their best not only to produce their products with integrity and a mind towards all aspects of sustainability, but also when they make an effort to communicate the story to the customers. We are well aware of this because this is what we've been doing. And so when we run across other brands that are also doing this, we get excited and we are able to see, you know, what sort of lip service and what is greenwashing. And although, you know, we're also still learning all of these things. Christy Dawn is one of these companies. You may have run across them. You may have seen their advertisements on social media, or you just may have heard them. You might not have heard of them. Christy Dawn is a dress company based in Los Angeles. And We believe that they are really doing their part in shifting the fashion industry in the direction of more sustainability, cooperation, and really just community building. And we were lucky to sit down with Marin Wilson, who is the Director of Regenerative Practices. We chatted with her all about the company and the partnership that they have with the Oshadi Collective in India. So through this project and their work with the farmers and the artisans, they've been successful in producing a bounty of healthy cotton. So they're running this regenerative farming operation in India where they source their fabric. And Marin tells us all about it in this interview. And they're really measuring their impact. And they're really working with the farmers and with the land to create this really being involved from planting the seed all the way to producing the final product. And you guys, the system's just not set up 
that way. And it's been really interesting to watch Christy Dawn sort of hack their way through it and set it up that way for themselves. Now, it's not all perfect and it's not all easy. And we discussed that in this conversation, but it's really fascinating and we're really excited about what they're doing. So, Yeah. And I I think the key thing here is just transparency. Marin is very out loud about the fact that they're working their way through it and nothing is 100%, but they've got their eye on the goal. And that's what's so remarkable about this and so remarkable for a company that's actually out there walking the talk. We hope you enjoy this interview and that you learn something. And thank you for being here. Yeah. Here's Marin Wilson. I'm Marin. I was born and raised in Montana, and my parents are both conservationists. So that's a lot of why I'm in the sustainability field and in the just like environmental field in general. And I studied environmental studies and chemistry in college. And then I spent a couple months in Oaxaca when I was in, still in school. And Oaxaca has just like an amazing tradition of doing different they still have like a very deep textile tradition there. So people are doing, actually this rug behind me is like naturally dyed and hand woven oh, cool. in the village outside of Oaxaca. I realized that the clothing industry, which is an industry I've always loved. My mom, she retired and then she now has a little fabric store on the side. So I've always grown up with like sewing my own clothing with my mom and knitting and doing all that stuff. And really in Oaxaca, I realized that there's this really complex system that's behind all the clothing we wear and there's these really beautiful communities behind all the clothing we wear and there's an opportunity to bring in field of study that's been happening for a long time especially in food but into the fashion industry so that's really how I started on this and then I was working in ethical fashion for a while where I was helping with just brands identifying or doing due diligence around extreme human rights abuses within their supply chain. And I one day just got a call from this guy named Otis Paskowskis, who's the CEO of Christy Dawn, when I was working at this nonprofit. And he was like, hi, I'm, I own this company with my wife called Christy Dawn. And we are a woman's dress company in Los Angeles. We use only dead stock, but we are really interested in growing our own cotton somewhere. And do you know how to do that? And I was like, well, that's not what this nonprofit does at all. But that is something that I personally am interested in. And I'd love to talk to you, like, not through work, about it more. And we started talking and just figured out that he was like, okay, if you want to go search for this and you find it, that would be amazing. So I started working on the side with Otis and Christy. And yeah, we met through some contacts, my contact at Fibershed, which is Rebecca Burgess. We met. Nishant Chopra, who's our main partner in India, he owns this collective called the Oshadi Collective. And it was just very synchronistic. We were like, okay, we're trying to find a small farm somewhere that can do a very small amount of cotton. We just want to trial this. We only want to make a couple thousand yards of fabric, like nothing too crazy. Christy Dawn, we're still a really small brand. And that was definitely a challenge. Like there's a lot of big farm conglomerates all over the world that are doing somewhat sustainable stuff, but they're like, oh, the minimum is like the total amount of fabric that Christy Dawn uses in three years or something ridiculous. Yes. So with Oshadi, it was great because he was just like, yeah, I'm like a young textile entrepreneur and I'm looking to start my own farm, but I need a brand support and I need demand from an existing brand. And he was like, I only have four acres. And we're like, that's perfect. And we started working with him on that four acres of land. And that's where a farm to closet started. As far as Christy Dawn in general, Christy Dawn was founded around eight years ago by the couple, Christy and Otis. They're now married. And Christy was had been working as a model for a while, but she always like really loved clothing, really loved vintage and looking for treasures at thrift stores. And she was like, I want to just start making my own clothing. Like I think from being in the behind the scenes of clothing brand, she was like, I think I can do this. You know, like mm-hmm. she worked closely with all these other creative women and she's like, I think I have that eye and I can do it. So she started working with Otis on just creating a small line out of their garage in Santa Monica. And they used dead stock, not because it was necessarily 
they were like, oh, we're going to be the super sustainable brand. They're just like, we only want to make a few dresses. Mm. And again, you come up to this problem of minimums. So they were like, okay, we have to go buy, like we only need a hundred meters of fabric or what have you. And so that's where they would go buy dead stock. And that's where you can really buy those small minimums. And the dead stock story started kind of like made Christy Dawn into a sustainable brand because they started telling the story and people were like, oh, this is so amazing. Like the fashion industry. And I feel like this was right around the time that is really coming out how dirty the fashion industry is and was and so people are like this is a great alternative you're upcycling fabric you're using what already exists you're not creating your own and then when I came on I guess they were like five years in it just got to a point that dead stock was really hard to scale and it was really hard to continue to be creative with and when you're just making a dress like we would have a dress that we could only make we were super excited about but we could only make 10 units of mm. and we would get like 450 back in stock requests on our website yeah and we were just like we have this community that really loves our clothing and really loves our story really loves Christy but we can't like provide them with what they need because we're kind of held back by this dead stock limitation and minimum or just like the small amounts that are available but it didn't make sense to just all of a sudden jump from dead stock to working with like a huge mill somewhere making conventional fabric or even organic fabric it's like with dead stock you're not a part of the problem right but the next step really would be becoming a part of the solution and so that's really where the idea from Christine Otis's perspective came in for doing their own farm they're like they were close friends with Phineas from Kiss the Ground and hearing about regenerative food. And they're like, well, clothing also comes from the soil, like all of our cotton and linen and hemp, it all comes from the soil. How can we do those similar practices, but with clothing? And so, yeah, I think it's been a really amazing journey to see it grow. We're now, we started with four acres. Now we're stewarding 80 acres a year. And we now have more or less enough regenerative cotton starting in May to cover probably like 85 to 90% of our raw material needs, which is really amazing to see. That's awesome. Yeah. So really quickly, for people who might not know, can you explain what dead stock fabrics are? Oh, yeah. So dead stock, when brands buy fabric, they have the tendency to overbuy because that might become a bestseller and all of a sudden you want to cut 100 more units or some percentage there's a risk that it might come out damaged or it might shrink more than expected in the final phases of it so for whatever reason there's always extra fabric on the market and if it's fabrics that these brands and brands have the tendency to not use what they have they have the tendency to just sell it off Mm. And so that's what dead stock is. It's just fabric that it's just excess from the industry that has kind of just landed into these massive warehouses all over the world. And Yeah. But then once it's gone, like you said, you can't really get more. So say they do find a beautiful one and they make a beautiful dress out of it. It's like you can't just like go get more of it is kind of the catch. Yeah. And I think the thing that I've learned and I don't know about for the fashion industry is like the most, I don't know exactly what I'm sure there's a good technical word for this but kind of like the most protected part of the industry from a creative perspective is fabric design Mm. so like once you make a print and you sell a print like you own that print and no one else can make that exact print again oh where like obviously you see a lot of people making very similar dresses and very similar tops and like you can see the same t-shirt 45 times yeah but with prints like it is illegal let's say we found a dead stock print and then we can't just take that print and give it to our partners in India and Mm. turn it into the exact same print because someone else owns that. It's like IP, right? Yeah, that's that's interesting. But that's definitely, it's very protected. And you can't, obviously you can't recreate it exactly, but do people like try to mimic it and, you know, knock off? Yeah, you can mimic it. And then the other thing a lot of brands do, and we do too, is we'll buy vintage prints. So like after a certain amount of years, you can buy like an old scarf or whatever mm-hmm. from certain suppliers. And that's a really good way to have a lot of prints because, I don't know, prints are really hard to make. Yeah. And I guess it's hard to make new prints in a way yeah, that's like, never been done Especially before. for Christy Dawn, it's like we love this like kind of vintage inspired look. And we definitely do it very mindfully. Our goal, like every season or six months before every season, we sit down with an herbalist and go through kind of the story of that season so last week we went over the story of fall 
and she goes through like okay like the movement of fall is all about slowing down and the colors of fall you're changing to these like autumnal colors of browns and yellows and oranges and reds and there's some purple in there and the herbs and fruit and everything that is abundant in fall or see the seasonal fruits of fall or vegetables of fall are these ones and so what we try to do is within each collection we include like we try to be seasonal about what we're including in our prints so it's not just like we're doing a daisy print because it's cute it's like we're doing a daisy print because daisies are blooming at this time of year or we're doing like we're doing a dandelion print in spring because dandelions are one of the first things that start flowering after the frost stops. that's so beautiful and it's so apparent too I love looking at yeah. It does the emails and y'all's beautiful prints and things you put out. It's so connected with the seasons, which yeah. is something that we love to do too. So yeah. we, <laughs> we get that on a deep level. Mm-hmm. Also going back to sort of your story and your evolution with the brand and the brand's own evolution, what do you guys mean by regenerative cotton? So I think what I was saying earlier is this idea that like sustaining is just you're not doing harm and you're not doing benefit. You're just kind of like reducing your harm as much as you can. So you're like net zero and you're not part of the problem. And really what for us regenerative means for cotton and also just creating a regenerative system within our entire supply chain is about creating healing and creating something that is actually part of a solution. And so at the farm level, that means we're improving soil health, we're improving crop health, we're improving water retention, but we're also improving the lives of the farmers and that the farmers can benefit as well from this interaction. And then from, as you go up the supply chain, it has that same effect where it's like, you're improving. We're working very closely with each person in the supply chain. And I think this is something that is unique or more unique to this project than other sustainability initiatives. It's like, this is a grassroots approach. We're not doing top down. So it's not like I'm here in LA saying, okay, farmers, you have to do these 10 things in order for us to buy your cotton Mm. we're just saying these are the goals and we'll pay for that process and based on your knowledge of the land and the fact that you're on that land every day figure out a way to to grow cotton within these parameters like they can't there's no synthetic inputs there's we would prefer drip irrigation but then like for the most part they can just kind of run with it and see what works yeah yeah Yeah. see what works we want biodiversity we want cover crops you know like there's the basic guidelines but they can run with it And then that's the same at every level. It's not just being like, okay, like we think that what helps you is giving you more money or like is giving you this. It's like sitting down with everyone and saying like, what would you benefit from this interaction? And what do you want from this interaction? And yeah, so I think along the entire chain, we have transparency and we have whether it is me and it's a bummer with COVID, we haven't been able to go meet with people. But before Mm -hmm. I was going I've been to India a few times and met with our partners over there and then also we work in our factory our office is in our factory in downtown LA so every day we're working directly with the people there yeah and you're creating these positive relationships and I think about it too when you think about a conventional system it's a negative feedback loop where in order for one person to win someone else has to lose so like Mm -hmm. in order for a brand to make more money they have to pay someone a little bit less or in order for there to be a super fast increase in yields year over year, you have to like pump in a ton of chemicals on a farm or whatever it is like that type of stuff. But for this supply chain, the farm to closet supply chain, what we're striving for is a positive feedback loop where in order for the brand to win, everyone else has to win. And in order for the farmers to win, everyone else will win. Yeah. So it's like the better the yields for the farmers are, the more abundant work will be along the entire supply chain, the more clothing the customers will buy, and the more profits we can go and put towards more regenerative farms in India. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about the Oshadi Collective. And you said you went when Otis, so he originally approached you and with the idea of growing cotton. So y'all kind of started that whole thing from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. seeking out regenerative grown cotton and so you found this guy in india through rebecca burgess and then did you go over there at that point we went to india when we were halfway through the season and then at the end of the season so we had (laughs) talked with nishantha and oshadi collective for 
about six months before we first went to India Mm -hmm. and just kind of created an agreement on what we were both looking for. But yeah, and then Oshadi Collective. So Nishant is, he comes from a textile family Mm -hmm. and he decided not to engage with the like conventional system and was like, there's so many beautiful traditions in the place he grew up in and around Southern India. And he wanted to both honor and kind of bolster the communities that were still doing these really traditional and beautiful textiles but also use that and like use tapping into the indigenous traditions in his region to create a solution for the clothing supply chain. So like create a more sustainable solution and create a more regenerative solution. And yeah, so our farm to closet project has definitely grown with Oshadi and now, and he has other brands that he works with as well in the same capacity. But yeah, it grew from kind of just this small four acre farm and small textile mill to now we're doing a lot bigger and working with the farmers with he manages or his collective manages the weaving and Uh dyeing and cutting some of our cutting and sewing some of it still happens here in LA. Oh. That's so cool. So you're you able to go over there and get inside the, the mill and the factory and see what's going on and Yeah, so I visited with every factory or vast majority of the factories that we work with from farm to the final product and yeah, visit with everyone. We have just like from a nuts and bolts perspective, like we have a very strict code of conduct and we make sure I have to know the lowest wage within every factory, the average wage, the highest wage, what benefits are. We just we have obviously very stringent rules around all of that before we even start working with someone. And that's starting at the farm. That's not just our cut and sews. Yeah. And then we're actually planning another trip to India in the next few months because we have grown relationships with new suppliers mm-hmm. and we have to go see and now it's getting safe enough to go so that's so interesting yeah that level of transparency is really rare yeah it's hard too I mean yeah I mean for anyone listening like yeah I mean you're at this point because you've been through it and it's easy to like recount you know and then we did this and then we did this I mean we can appreciate in particular just it's not easy to do all of that and to right and to make those connections and to have and the communication and the cross-cultural understanding and all of that is like so complex and layered it is yeah it's really impressive that you guys have been able to do that in a very relatively short amount of time too yeah I think I'm always impressed by how quickly we're able to do it and I think something that's important to me and to this project in general is like we kind of just allowed ourselves to start I think a lot of brands are like okay, I want to do it perfectly right before we start doing anything. And like, we were very far from doing it perfectly right when we first put the seeds in the ground. Like our four acre farm versus the farm now, night and day, uh, the amount of like regenerative practices that we're using and the amount of fertility we're adding to the soil and all of that. But I think we allowed ourselves to start and kind of like, we're like, we can make mistakes along the way and it's okay. And Mm -hmm. we can be transparent about it. It doesn't need to be this perfect regenerative system, we can move towards that. And the thing about regeneration is there's no end point. You can always Mm -hmm. become more and more regenerative. And so, yeah, I think that was definitely the reason why we were able to do it so fast. And I think the other reason why is because of our economic model around it is Christy Don paid for process. So we were like, this is the process that we want. And we're not going to make someone else hold the risk of that for us. Mm -hmm. We're going to pay for that. So usually what happens would be, a brand would approach a farmer and say, I want you to start growing organic cotton. And then I'll buy it maybe, I don't know, (laughs) if I like it. Yeah, and whatever you yield from that, I'll buy it. Yeah. And the farmer maybe or maybe doesn't convert to organic cotton. Maybe they cut some corners because they're scared and they want to make sure they have cotton. And like right now, the conventional thought is like the more conventional (laughs) chemicals and Mm -hmm. GMOs and all that will yield higher yields in the short term, even though that's not true at all. But yeah, so I think a really big part of it was that we were like, we'll pay up front. Yeah. Yeah, Pay for the compost, we'll pay for the drip irrigate or fiber shed paid for the first drip irrigation, but pay for the land lease, we'll pay for the farmer's salary. That's so interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? I kind of remember just from like a consumer customer standpoint, I feel like I remember seeing emails was there some kind of investment program you guys had? Like people could like prepay or something. Like, can you talk a little bit about that model? That was really interesting. Yeah. So that model, it's called our land stewardship. You can buy 
or you can invest $200 in a plot on the regenerative farm that we do and collectively with Oshadi Collective. And so customers can put $200 up front and that pays for, I think it's like 3,785 square feet of land based on how much we're paying up front because we sit down with the farmers at the beginning of each season and with Nishan and figure out how much it's going to cost. You know, like how much is compost, the tractor, is the farmer's salaries, is the teas that the farmers drink on their breaks, like all of that. We figure out about how much that's going to cost. So we know how much each square foot costs. And then based on our previous seasons, we also know approximately how much that will yield. So we've set, based on previous seasons yields, we set the amount, like we're going to pay for sure $3.57 per pound of cotton. We'll buy back the cotton that's on that little plot of land at that cost to the customer that paid for it. And they'll get it in the form of store credit. So pretty much it's just like a pre-sale for whatever dress you want. Like honestly, you can buy any dress from our website Mm -hmm. would be cool. You could buy a dress from that farm to closet collection that you invested in. But yeah, that came from two places it's we ask the question how do you engage people how do you bring people in so that they are literally invested yeah and they're more involved and I think so often we're blind to the struggles of working with nature that farmers face that like they're at the whim like for example this year we've had unprecedented monsoons on the farm and so we're not getting as high of a yield as we want because there's more disease and there's more damage to the cotton. And usually that would be fully on the farmer's shoulders. But currently it's actually on Christy Dawn's shoulders, the farmer's shoulders, Oshadi Collective's shoulders. And I think it's like 300 customers that invested in the land. Yeah. And I think redistributing that is really great. And it also makes it more digestible from an economic point of view for a company to pay upfront for raw material. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems so groundbreaking, but also it's like, isn't that obvious? Yeah. So why is that so weird? Yeah. Well, the the biggest thing is from a conventional place, any brand, any company, you want to tighten that gap between paying for something and profiting from that. Mm -hmm. Like ideally you want to be, if I was just like a capitalist who was like, I want to make the most money off the most people, I would be like, I want to sell all of the goods that I made and then I want to pay for them after I sell them all. Yeah. And that's what a lot of brands have. They have these like net 90 deals with their factories where the factories are taking out loans and the brand is making a profit off the goods and then finally they pay for those goods. Mm. And we are far from that, but it really puts it on your head when we're like, oh, we're going to actually pay for the goods a year in advance Mm -hmm. when there's still little seeds in the ground Mm -hmm. and then profit from them in a year. So it's like, it makes it just so that's a little more, you're closing that gap a little bit. And I I think you know, a lot of our listeners probably don't realize what a dire situation it is, particularly in India for some of the cotton farmers, particularly ones that are growing cotton conventionally using the chemicals. And isn't there a huge cancer rate for those young farmers and early death and suicide and just all kinds of stuff that people just probably don't even realize? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a huge burden, especially with cotton. Cotton has a very dark history. Well, has a dark history in general, as I'm sure most people know, especially or one of those iterations of that dark history is during the Green Revolution in India. A major chemical company brought in GMO seeds into India, but there are seeds that were used and proven to work in the Central Valley of California. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, let's bring these to India and tell everyone there that it'll work really great. And I'm sure as very obvious that the Central Valley of California is a very different place than India. There might be some similarities in the soil and in the climate, but for the most part, like a seed and a pest that's in California may not be the same pest that's in this valley. And so, yeah, they brought these seeds over, told farmers, like, this is going to be great. Look how much better the yields were in California. You should buy these. You can take out a loan with us, but you're going to make so much money eventually from the abundant yields you're going to get that this loan will be so easy to pay back. And then the first year it worked and the farmers were like, great. Second year it stopped working. Mm -hmm. And then, so then they're like, oh, well, if it's not working, you can just buy some more of our chemicals. Yeah. And then use those chemicals and that'll get rid of the problems that our seeds created. But you're locked into using our seeds. You cannot use other seeds. If we find one of our seeds on your property, we'll sue you because we have 
ownership of that seed. So if you switch to another seed, but then we find this old seed on the property, you'll be in trouble. So then they were like, but you can use our chemicals, but you have to take out another loan and get in more debt to use our chemicals. So then the farmer started using the chemicals, but then the chemicals stopped working after a few years. And they just created this huge mountain of debt. And I think it is like 250,000 cotton farmers in India have committed suicide in the last 15 years yeah because of the debt mm-hmm. and the really depressing part is that most of them are doing it by drinking the chemicals that were sold to them wow oh wow oh my gosh that's harrowing yeah i know and then the the cancer level is sky high as well isn't it because of their because of their exposure to the chemicals oh yeah and you're having that cancer level at every level of the supply chain you're these people are in most conventional clothing supply chains the workers are working directly with harsh chemicals every mm-hmm. day. And I think obviously there's certifications and chemical standards that are out there that are reducing the amount of toxic chemicals. But it's amazing when you read these chemical certifications, mm-hmm. you're like, this is great, but it's crazy that you have to even say like, you can't put, for example, azo dyes, like a big marketing thing. People say, these are free of azo dyes. And azo's like been a known carcinogen for many years now. Yeah. So that means that there's still plenty of chemical plants or dyeing plants that are still dyeing or clothing with azo dyes and no one cares. And there's still so much clothing being sold here in our country that are full of azo dyes. Mm-hmm. And the general consumer public has no idea that this is a problem at all. Yeah. And I think it's definitely like our skin is our biggest organ and we don't know what how we're affected by that but I'm assuming it's not great Mm -hmm. and so it's like yeah it's affecting the people far off where somewhere in the world creating our clothing where they're making it yeah but it's also affecting us and it's affecting when you're adorning your body and like like chemically treated yeah Yeah. you're sleeping in it you're yeah running in it you're sweating in it Mm -hmm. like it's just yeah yeah and I think they're always going to be you know the articles or the studies or whatever that say oh we don't know. Most of the time, most of the reading I've done on this is more like we don't know, you know, how much of the toxicity is left in these dyes or in, we don't know how much the toxicity of the chemicals used to grow the cotton is actually in the clothes when actually, you know, if you don't know, then why would the public want to take that risk? Yeah. And what we do know... It's like innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think as consumers, we're kind of conditioned to think, well, that must be okay then. That makes it okay. But if you sort of just apply common sense to that, like these chemicals are literally killing people at the source mm-hmm. of the growing and the production and all those things. So, you know, apply common sense to that. Do we want to be wearing and buying these things? But that's, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion, but it's so impressive to hear about a brand that is really taking on these questions and these problems literally from the ground up. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like, at the beginning of this project, this farm to closet project sounded like everyone was very open and just like, how are we going to make this work? How intentional was this choice to go to India? Was that because you met these people and that kind of worked that way? Or did it come from a place of like, India is one of the places where actually a lot of the world's cotton is grown and it's like really bad. So we should go there, like kind of to the source and like start there. Or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we definitely like when I first sat down with the Christy Dawn team, we talked about India just because if you think about, I think a big part of this project, it wasn't, we didn't want to sacrifice our design integrity. So we didn't want to make, we always talk about like, it's like if you give someone a vegan cookie and it tastes terrible, they're like, oh, why would I ever want to be a vegan? Yeah. But if you give someone a vegan cookie and it tastes just like a normal cookie or it tastes really good, it's like, oh, interesting. Like, this might be a good option. Yeah. And so I think we didn't want to sacrifice integrity or quality or just any of this mm-hmm. creative part of our brand that we've already built over time. And so that meant that we had to stay with using really lightweight materials to make really flowy, lightweight dresses and floral prints and yeah and just kind of creating these like really easy styles and I think there are so many places in the world that have traditional fiber sheds or textile cultures that can be tapped into and celebrated and supported through projects like the farm to closet project but not all of those places can do it making really lightweight cotton with floral prints and I think the Mm. fact that that was really has been a part of the Indian textile culture for so long was why we 
like especially we were really excited about block printing because we were like, oh, you could probably use you can use natural dyes. It's all hand done. There's no electricity involved. That would be so cool to use in our dresses. And you make these beautiful, like you have this great regenerative cotton woven into fabric. You could even hand weave into fabric because they still do hand looms and then get naturally dyed black printed and just create this like super beautiful, but also very sustainable and very kind of like mother earth honoring garment. And I think that wasn't like, we didn't necessarily seek India. Like I was, we were talking to seeing even if it was possible in our backyard mm-hmm. in California or looking in Central America and Turkey, like there's so many places, but I think it was a mix of like, it does make most logical sense to start in India. And that's just the people that like we are connected with yeah. and started working with. But the goal would be, it'd be great to expand that we're using these kind of traditional or not even just regenerative textile communities all over the world. Because it's yeah. not, and diversifying. So the block printing, I'm interested in that. So you're using local artists. Are the local artists using their own designs? You let them design the, the block prints and so forth? Do they do the dyes? Are they plant dyes? Or how does that all work? Well, we have two parts of our supply chain that aren't within the farm shed. Mm-hmm. Like it's not within 50 miles of the farm. And that's the block printers. The block printers we work with, just part of the block print process, it has to be done in a very dry climate and in a very warm and sunny climate Mm -hmm. so they're up in kind of near the Pakistani border where it's a kind of desert where our farm is more in a tropical region and then we also work with a couple cut and sews that do expertise like lace or certain embroideries that are up near Delhi but yeah as far as block printing goes we work with one of if not the only block print communities that still exist solely using plant dyes Mm -hmm. so Block printers all over India are still using some plant dyes and some chemical dyes, but this community only uses plant dyes. We usually send them design files based on, again, like what I was saying, it's important to us to keep our like creative integrity yeah. along the entire way. So we'll design prints and we'll definitely see their inspiration and see what blocks they have available, but they'll take a print and carve. It's teak carved, so they'll like, we'll send them the file and they'll carve out what it will look like as a block and then yeah there's like crazy alchemy that they're doing to figure out we'll give them we're not like okay it has to be this exact orange but we're like okay we want this orange with this shade of blue and this red and they have to figure out how to use the different plant dyes and how those interact with the different colors so that they can achieve it so it's pretty cool like they sometimes do resist printing which means they cover the blocks in mud Mm -hmm. and print it and then like dip that printed fabric into a dye vat and then wash it off all the mud so that it's the color of the base like the white of the fabric yeah and then they like print on top like it's a whole wow crazy process but yeah it's really cool and yeah they're still using a lot of these ancient recipes of natural dyes gosh i just i want to go there <laughs> i know i want to like watch them do it so gosh i'm fascinated are they in a place where they they have like plant dye farms or intentionally planted these dye plants around them or are these you know naturally occurring in the area and or do they use extracts, you know, that they can get from other places? It's just hard. It's it's amazing to think that, wow, the scale of this is, is really impressive. So are they using plant dyes that are local to them? Or do they use extracts? Or do they intentionally plant the things around them so they'll have them? I think it's a mix. There's certain plants that grow naturally near them that they can forage for. They usually use whole plants as the start. Uh But yeah, they source from around India. And then we also have, so separate from the black printers, there's also people that naturally dye either fabric or yarn. So that's a whole different art and a whole different kind of science behind that. And so those artisans are near the farm. And so sometimes we'll use like we'll grow indigo on the farm as one of the cover crops Mm -hmm. or we'll grow marigolds or something like that. And they'll use that in some of our dyes. Gosh, you guys should put together a textile tour of India. Oh my gosh. People would go. I mean, this is amazing. That'd be so cool. Go to your, you know, the farms and the factories and the the plant dye places and the block print places. And I want to (laughs) go. I know it's very fun. It's very exhausting to be 12. You're like landing in India. You're like, okay, it's the middle of the night, but it's the middle of the day. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. And um, I've been to India once. I was 
it was way younger, but it is like it's like being on another planet. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're literally in a different hemisphere and everything in in so many ways, but it's so beautiful. But it's just yeah, so stimulating and. The smells and the colors, just like not even in the textiles and things, but just like in the air, like everything is just, it's so crazy. A lot of stimulus. Yeah, it's beautiful. I've never been to India, but, you know, of course, Emma took a lot of pictures and videos and stuff when she was over there. And the thing that really impressed me when I was looking at her visuals of that trip were the colors, the very, very bright, vibrant colors of the textiles, the, the clothing that people were selling on the street and also wearing and um, I didn't realize it back then. That was before we started all this. We started on this journey. She was in high school. But now I realize that that represents a lot of toxic dyes that's over there and, you know, mm-hmm. in the rivers and in their skin and all that. And yeah, it's really cool to see the stuff that you guys are making is yeah. much more earthy, earthy and muted because it is like it's real stuff coming from the earth. And there's a lot of that on your website. There's a lot of that communication of that ethos of partnering with Mother Earth. And, you know, I really appreciate that. That's certainly our language. Can you speak to the overall concept of reciprocity as a model by Christy Dawn? Yes, yes. And how this applies to... We always think about, I always go back to this Aldo Leopold quote, that's you can only have an ethical relationship to something you see, love, understand, or otherwise have faith in. And so it's this idea, like you have to know something in order to be ethical in relation to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of where we start with everything is like we can't really have an ethical relationship with a farmer unless we know the farmer Mm. and so it really does take a lot of research and a lot of just like listening and getting to know everyone and then from there building out what makes sense so that we can all benefit from it from our interactions together yeah and then I think that goes also to the earth like she's giving us all this cotton so we might as well also give back and create a reciprocal relationship with her as well that's so beautiful yeah what you guys are doing is amazing and it does seem like I even said earlier in this conversation like this is so obvious like why isn't everyone doing this it's because it's not easy and there are very particular specific challenges that we can't even like fathom that would come up and I'm thinking particularly too, like it obviously comes with this price tag. It's really expensive to do things this way. And so that's why it's sort of outside of our normal model of particularly in the fashion industry, like we were talking about earlier. So yeah, I guess it's just my really long rambly way of saying, what are some of the challenges that you think are most important to convey to people who might not just like understand all that goes into this? Yeah. And people that might question, you know, what the price of the product. Yeah. For consumers, the everyday consumer that goes like, wow, these dresses are pretty, but... Yeah, I think there's a price to doing things right, unfortunately, and going against, obviously, the conventional systems, the conventional system, because it's the cheapest system, and going very far against that system is going to be a little more costly, but the idea is over time, it will become less, and Mm -hmm. hopefully the gap between the two will be smaller. But yeah, I think as far as clothing goes, we've become trained to think it should cost a certain amount, even though it's cost the same amount over the last like 20 years. I think there's some crazy stats out there about how the cost of a pair of jeans like versus the cost of a buying a new car is totally a different percentage. Like the jeans like barely increased and the mm. car has like tripled in the last or like 20 years. Interesting. Yeah, there's a certain cost to doing things right. But I think the other biggest challenge is just the timeline of working with nature and kind of the uncertainty of working with nature is a little bit uncomfortable when you become so separated from that. Mm, Um, I think we were lucky that we got to start from scratch. It's not like we had an existing supply chain that we had to like kind of upend and figure out all the issues and fix all those issues. We started with like what made sense for us from the start. But yeah, I think in general, it's just a lot of communication, a lot of figuring out what works for both our customers and our community that's working on our product. And I would say our biggest challenge really is communication. Like I think telling the story and telling it well and telling it in a way that a person with a ton of experience and a ton of knowledge or a person with no knowledge and digest it is really hard and really hard to get the point across and get people to really understand what we're doing, why it's important, why it's different. There's so many people out there that are like, 
I don't know, you see greenwashing campaigns every day where you're like, oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, why is what Christy Dawn's doing so much different than that? Mm -hmm. You obviously have a devoted audience that understands. Like, there's a core amount of people that are getting it and providing the fuel for you to, to move forward in this effort. And, you know, hopefully, naturally, you'd think that would grow. But then here, I'm wondering, too, like you mentioned, there's the monsoons this year. So like your yield isn't going to be as much. So like, who is bearing the burden of that was what you were saying was like, everyone shares in that burden? Or I mean, is that just like financially, as a company? Is that just like, you guys are just like out of luck? Well, fortunately, in a regenerative system, we shouldn't have that many, we shouldn't have high highs and low lows in the way you would with a conventional agricultural system because Uh you're the main point is you're building resilience so we are fortunate that even though there were high monsoons we'll still probably get up close to the yield we expected if not a little bit higher because you're also in a retirement system with building resilience and building health each year you should have a a exponent or not exponential but increase Uh in some ways in yield and in just in general of all the other ways that the farm things in the farm increase with increased health. But yeah, I think definitely a risk for a brand. It's a risk, but it's not like if the brand didn't take the risk, that risk wouldn't exist, which is what I always think about. Like, I think it's like, it is risky, but that risk is still there and they just might not feel it the same. Like, for example, we pay up front for the farm for a process. Most people buy even sustainable brands. They're buying organic cotton off the market. Organic cotton prices have increased by like, 140% over the last year just for the raw cotton because of the decreased amount of workers that were available during COVID and just Mm. general like the classic COVID supply chain issues and every brand's feeling that like every brand is like holy crap we're paying a lot more for organic cotton now than we used to so it's like those changes in the trends in the agricultural sector of a supply chain will feel that eventually in certain ways but it's just you're feeling it more directly yeah you're either going to feel it at market or at the beginning yeah. that's so that's yeah. such a good point that's right. such a good way to think about it you can either be a part of it from the beginning and feel it or be a consumer at the end of the chain and also feel it so <laughs> exactly so i'm interested in hearing how you think the slow fashion movement has evolved or changed over the last few years? I think in general, the fashion industry has changed a ton. I think like when I started this work, regenerative was a really, no one knew what that meant. And now it's thrown around maybe too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as far as slow fashion goes, I think these small brands that started out just making things really intentionally have slowly been changing the way people think about their clothing, especially disposability of clothing. I think that's a big part of why this industry is so dirty is because people buy a t-shirt and they're like, oh, whatever. This t-shirt is like buying a, you know, like it's like buying a paper bag or something like they can just throw it away when they're done with it. It doesn't, it's like not a big deal at all, but really should be a bigger deal. So I think in like kind of revaluing clothing, it's really important. But then I also challenge, I think there is a lot of like slow fashion or like small companies that are becoming equated with sustainability and mm-hmm. not necessarily true. Like there's these brands that are part of the slow fashion movement, but they're not necessarily part of the like sourcing organic cotton movement. So you right. have, it's, yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. So yeah, many and layers. Think, and that's more like customer understanding and education, but, and obviously no brand can be like, Oh yeah, we're slow fashion, but we like aren't environmentally or ethically great. <laughs> yeah. And to the point you made earlier, and also you stated on the website that sustainable is not enough. Mm-hmm. I think sustainable is another big buzzword. And people just assume, oh, sustainable, that's what I'm looking for, sustainable, but not thinking through the meaning of that. And you explain this meaning sustainable mean, almost means like, well, it does mean you're sustaining a situation, whereas to your point and to the point of your brand, there's healing to be done. And that takes even more proactive policy and practices and extremely forward thinking. Yeah, something to think about. I think my advice for a consumer or a brand in general is like, it's not one size fits all. There's not one way to be sustainable or regenerative. It's There's so many different avenues. There's so many different fights you can fight to help create positive change in the industry. And I think whatever feels the most authentic is where you're going to get the biggest change. And so it's like, yeah, it's really important to you that everyone gets paid and that there's no human rights abuses. Like certain brands are leaders in that and that you can really find and support and buy clothing 
that align with that value or if it's really important to you to make sure that there's no toxic chemicals. Like there's so many different layers to it. And I can say from our experience, it's not like Christy Dawn is doing everything exactly right or everything to like the highest degree that's available. But where we have to like fall lower, like there's other brands that are doing it just as well. And so it's like buy to your values and that's where you're going to make the most change. Yeah. And same from a brand perspective, like I want as many brands as I can to change to this a similar model to what that what we do. And I think a really big part of that is paying for process and digging deep and having close relationships with everyone in the supply chain. But it doesn't mean you need to do it exactly how we did it. Brands yeah. can make their own authentic version of that. And that's where they're going to make the biggest step in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. What does slow living mean to you? I guess just like living a very balanced life. I think it's important to think about creating a healthy balance between your work and your play and being outside and being inside and being really mindful. I think it's something comes, I feel like I intuitively am more on the like hippie spectrum of living just because of who I am. And like my boyfriend and I only eat whole foods and like we mill our own grain and we like do a lot of like crazy (laughs) um like I sell a lot of our clothing, like we're very far on that spectrum, but that's not for everyone. And I think for the most part, it's just about, again, like doing what's authentic to you and what makes sense along with your value system and making sure, like I think it's just that classic phrase of like, you can only help others if you help yourself first and making sure that you are healthy and happy and feeling like successful and proud of yourself in order to help other people do the same. Heck yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds awesome. And uh, what does the good dirt mean to you? The good dirt as a phrase, either literally or metaphorically or any way you want to answer that. Good dirt would be, I don't know, soil is good dirt, I guess. Like I feel like dirt in my head is kind of just like void of life, like dirt. And soil is good dirt. It's dirt that's full of bacteria and mycelial and nutrients and oxygen and water and carbon and all of those good things. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And your clothing from your farm to closet movement comes from good dirt. Yeah. That's our main focus. Yeah. Very intentionally. Yeah. What's your favorite Christy Dawn piece or pattern or like what's your favorite thing to come out of the farm to closet collection? I think any of our like naturally dyed hand woven pieces are really important to me or very special to just the how like authentic the pieces towards our story mm-hmm. and I guess we do have a Marin dress it's not necessarily my style but it's like hand woven or naturally dyed from the farm so like that I feel like really and that's you absolutely the Marin dress I was you. gonna ask you if it was named after you yeah oh <laughs> yeah it was very nice so I feel like that dress definitely is really exciting I think we also have t-shirts that are just plain t-shirts and that's probably what I wear the most from our farm to closet collection. And those are really cool because throughout the whole process. So in order to make our dresses, you need really long staple cotton to make the super fine thread to make super thin fabric. That's good for a dress like a Christie Dawn dress and strong, but also breathable and flowy. But along that whole process, not every piece of cotton is going to be that perfect long staple. And on the farm level, you sometimes get like the kind of yucky cotton balls. And at the gym level, there's like waste that's on the floor at the spinning level. And we used all of that cotton, recycled it into 40s quality yarn and made t-shirts out of it. And so cool. the t-shirts are also very special because it kind of just shows it's like no fiber left behind in the process. <laughs> yeah, no fiber left behind. That's wonderful. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't know y'all did t-shirts. Are those on the websites, the t-shirts? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So is there anything else that you wanted to mention today? Or I like to ask what you want the audience to most understand about the work of Christy Dawn and the mission as a regenerative apparel brand. I think the most important to me is that we're definitely not perfect and we're just trying our best and you just have to start somewhere. Yeah. When you're doing the thing, you know, and nobody's done it yet, you have to go out there and figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's great. Kudos to y'all. I'm, yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah, thank you. It's really a great story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today and being so knowledgeable and articulate about how it all goes together. It's of really course. very interesting. So thank you so much for your time today and enjoy the rest of your day. And yeah, that sunshine out there. Wow. I know. Happy <laughs> summer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. Goodbye.